Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Brandi Carlisle, where I ask her, did you know you'd grow up to be Brandi Carlisle? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I normally don't cuss so soon, but I cannot fucking stand how excited I am for today's episode. This is so major. Welcome to Getting Curious. Brandi Carlisle, who is a six-time Grammy Award winner and a number one New York Times bestselling author. She is currently nominated for count of one, two, three, four, five Grammys for her new album, In These Silent Days. Chills on my triceps. Welcome, Brandi Carlisle. How are you? Oh my God, I'm so well. I love you. More than I can say, you are an absolute gift to the world and you have brought me so much joy and insight. This is a high honor. Thank you for letting me talk to you today. Brandy, I can't have you say that to me like at the very beginning. Like normally I just get tricep chills, but that gave me like quad chills. You just need to start with it. I, I just need to tell you this. That also like made my stomach a full flutter. Um, okay. Also, I just have to tell everybody not to like be a hideous name dropper, but I just feel like we have to say, Brittany, will you just tell everyone who you were subtly FaceTiming with right before this? It's just kind of major, if you wouldn't I, mind telling I us. I was having my morning FaceTime with Elton John, and he was so excited <laughs> that I was talking to you that he basically hung up on me and told me to get in there and do the interview and send you all of his love and admiration. I need a fainting couch and I'm sitting down. You didn't say like that first and third. Oh yeah. Why do I have tears in my eyes and it's only like 20 seconds into this recording? Okay, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us. We're so excited. Like everyone on my team is such a massive fan. Actually, I think, do you remember when my, when I saw you at, um, SNL that one time and then my assistant Julie got to take a picture with you and it was like really major for yeah, her. I, I don't do know remember. <laughs> it's like framed. It's in her family's living room. It's like a really major moment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, you're obviously just like a life-changing person. Everyone looks up to you so much. Everyone's so obsessed with you. And also, in these silent days, not your fault that like, you just keep on getting critically acclaimed, gorgeous, celebrated work every time you turn around. You are just performing on SNL. Um, can you tell us a little bit about In These Silent Days? Um, I know you were working on it through the pandemic. Tell us about tell us about In These Silent Days. Well, not unlike you, um, I wrote a book. And it was amazing, the revelations that came from writing this book. The things that I had discovered about myself. You know, I always thought I remembered my life. I thought I could, you know, uh, recall my memories in vivid detail. But to actually sit down and mine it chronologically... It was amazing because smells resurfaced and sounds and floral patterns on the couch and on the living room and in the car that we used to drive. Things, nuanced details from my life kind of emerged and this picture started getting painted inside my mind and I, this book flew out of me and I wrote my book and I just remember, you know, the last day closing my computer at the desk and standing up, leaving the desk and going straight to the piano. and. So, you know, I've made mm -hmm. some albums and I'm 40 years old, but this album's different because it came from me really understanding who I am, I think, in a way that I don't, I hadn't understood until now. So Broken Horses is the name of your book. So Broken Horses like led you mm -hmm. to this album kind of. Yeah. Or like totally. Yeah, it's, it is absolutely like a continuum of, of the book. It's a, it wouldn't be here without it, you know? which is really weird because I, I didn't think there were going to be any more firsts in the ways that I would write albums anymore. 
if people have been living under a rock and they haven't like been following like your career, I have this annoying habit of like breaking everything down, relating it to either like an Olympics or like a presidential administration. So okay. your first album, Brandy Carlisle, 2005, this comes out in the Bush years. This mm-hmm. is pre-Obama. This is right after Athens. Chelsea Memel has just won her first individual all-around world title in the closest tiebreak with Nastia Liukin ever. Uh, 2005, it's a different time. You also are a very, like, just sidebar, very consistent music maker, which, like, you better give us what we want. Love the new content. Like, thank you for that. But 2005 to now, and because you've had Brandi Carlisle, The Story in 2007, Give Up the Ghost in 2009, Bear Creek 2012, The Fire Watcher's Daughter 2015, By the Way, I Forgive You 2018, Snaps, Damn Near Broke My Phone Listening to That One, <laughs> and In These Silent Days in 2021. Is um, In These Silent Days, like, a departure? How have you like embraced kind of different styles um, in this album? Well, I think that um, if there's a departure in this album, it wouldn't be based in genre or instrumentation. I think it would just be based in vulnerability because um, this may surprise you or appall you, uh, Jonathan, but I've been adverse to drama uh, most of my life. I've been a bit, I, I don't want to say rigid, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of a northern stoic person, you know, I live in the foothills and and I try to be and maintain a kind of level state of mind, you know, maybe it's cuz I was I was raised with some chaos in in my life and when I wrote the book it was like all right, I'm done. I'm done shielding the world from the fact that actually I have a lot of drama. <laughs> and so when I went into the studio on this record, I just let loose in the way that I sang and the way that I played. There's no timing. There are no click tracks. It's almost all live vocal bleeding into every instrument. And it's just really shameless in the way that I, you know, that I used my voice on this album. That makes it a departure for me. Um, I get embarrassed listening to it even a little bit, but I know it was true and, and it was who I was in that moment. Okay. I'm obsessed with like, I'm obsessed with all of that answer. You wrote in these silent days in the pandemic after this, after this book. So what was it mm-hmm. like getting back into like touring, being back and like on SNL cameras? Like I kind of, when I did my first performance after like to not comparing my crew, cause it's not, but I like, but when I like, I did this show in the Kennedy center, I was like, am I going to remember how to do this in front of people? And it was like kind of unnerving or were you just like, get me back out there, queen. I haven't been away from people this long in a hot minute. I love that question so much. First of all, you should know, I just came from the Kennedy center and you, the picture of you is on the wall and it's, it's just, it's just joy. <laughs> like you are just a joy bomb. And I loved, I loved, I loved seeing it in, in, um, in that space. I, was really emotional when I first got on stage again because I wasn't sure whether it was ever going to happen. I mean, it was like there was a time when I didn't know if it was going to go back to normal or what it was going to feel like. But I had to keep it together because you can't sing and cry. Um, so I did. But I have been slowly having to regain some of my audacity back. I don't know if you've noticed this since the shut-ins. I mean, I watch your morning coffee dances and I see your audacity like on full display and 
I didn't have um, the nerve to do coffee dances, but um, I've noticed that I could get back on stage with the band and kind of strut around with a microphone and fog machine and reverb and lights and like sequins and everything just fine. But that anytime I was like called to pick up a guitar and sort of bear all and be alone, I was having these little crises of confidence. Mm. And so I actually just played um, a solo show last weekend because I just needed to fight or flight it. I just needed to sink or swim. And um, it gave me a lot of my confidence and audacity back. And actually, I really feel like I'm just now ready to return to the stage as my full self. So it took quite a bit of time for like a literal Brandy Carlisle, who is literally you yourself. It took you a little bit to feel like you found your like zhuzh back. I mean, that's my words, not yours. Yeah, my zhuzh, my dynamics, um, you know, be able to look up from my hands on the piano and know that I'm going to hit the right chords. Just a real crisis of confidence. I've had it. I noticed it, you know, I do these jams with Joni Mitchell once a month at her house Ooh. and it's a guitar pull, you know, would pass the songs around the room and, and the song would come to me and I would, I would pass it up or I'd try to get somebody else to play it with me or anything to not be exposed doing it by myself, which is like so counterintuitive to me because I've been a ham since I was like seven years old, you know? And what was that? That was just from, that was like your nervous system's response, like to the shut-ins and just being isolated from people that then when you kind of got back in community, like what, what was it? Just like random? I think so. I think I just lost some social and dynamic musical chops and just needed to throw <sighs> myself into the deep end to make <sighs> sure I could still do it. Did you do anything like that for yourself when you go, you know, you're such an outward and incredibly inspiring person. I mean, did you get a little... Yeah, Shut in. I will. I mean, I will. I mean, well, I, I had my husband and I kind of, um, I had my husband and I, I don't know. I think I, I look at you turning the tables on the podcast, asking me a question. Get it. Um, yeah, no, I, I think as far as like the, my comedy bit goes, like writing a new show and then like my, um, stage manager, Julie, who's a really good friend of mine was like, should you do like a littler club once or twice to like, do some, like do some of your new stuff. And I was like, no girl, I got it. I know I can do it. So that was kind of my version of just sink or swimming at the Kennedy center. Like just, mm-hmm. uh, and it, I felt like I swam. Um, but there was like, right. I mean, that whole day I was just like, I am going to shit my pants. Like well, maybe I should have done the smaller places. And it's like, there's so, so many rich. legends. Yeah. And big. Mm-hmm. Um, but I landed all my tumbling passes. Uh, I do start my comedy routine with a, a gymnastics routine and a leotard on a bouncy tumble track. Um, it's a little unique to my, I don't know that many other comedians that do that to open their show, but that is what I did. But I nailed my passes. I nailed the new comedy, but that's not the point. That is a brilliant way to warm up for a show, by the way. The best thing I've ever heard of in my life. It's good, right? Yeah. You, but this must be like, I don't mean to talk about myself when I'm literally interviewing a legend, but think about this for a crisis of confidence. I want you to. Have you ever, like, what my life is, which you don't understand this because you can sing, like, it, you just sing, you just, you're a singer, girl. Not to quote Whoopi Goldberg and Sister Act too, but you are a singer. Mm -hmm. I can, like, try to open my mouth and make a pretty noise and it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Like, I wish that I could. I wish that after I wrote over the top, like I bet I could write songs or, but I don't have the instrument. I just don't. Ha- and we're not going to work on it right now. I don't, that's not what I'm asking for. I just, I have this disease where I can 
only sing the note that I hear and not well, which is just such a double whammy. You know, I can't harmonize. Plus, I don't make amazing noises with my throat hole or my mouth hole. Like, it's just very, like, not... The, the, okay, so, but that's, the, you know, so whatever. So for you and your, cause I don't even know if you could do this. And I, I think it could be like too mean to even ask. Cause like for an, I hate it when people ask me what my favorite thing. Cause there's, so if you had to do like a top three for mm-hmm. like stand out, stand out. Oh, cause this is, these are three, I have three questions in one. And I just think I bit off too much. I can chew cause I can't Go even do it. top three. Cause it's really collaborations, concerts and moments on tour, but that's, like 18 things. Mm-hmm. What would be like your top three experiences in your career? I mean, I can narrow it down. I can tell you a few. Um, one of them happened this weekend. You know, I watched Joni Mitchell stand up out of a wheelchair and walk up the steps of the Library of Congress and, and get a medal put around her neck for contributing to mm-hmm. American culture and art in a way that makes her more of an ambassador even than an artist because when the best of us is remembered we'll remember it through the lens of people like Joni Mitchell and even as a Canadian she's contributed so much to our daily lives and also just to to watch her recover from that aneurysm and um, get to where she's gotten to now it was a really high honor and I was there as Joni's guest and um, that's something that like when my life flashes before my eyes like I'll see that happen um the other one, I'm going to have to name check the joke at the, at the Grammys because I knew it was cha- a changing my life moment. And I knew I was old enough and centered enough in myself to experience it right then and not in retrospect. I wasn't <sighs> nervous in a way that I couldn't be there. And I just remember plugging in my guitar and feeling so ready. Like, oh, this is my moment. I knew, I knew it. I knew it was coming. I knew what it was. And, um, so I'll never forget that. I remember it finishing and I knew what had just happened and I was jumping up and down. I whenever I watch it. I'm like, Oh God, don't jump Brandy. Just, um, but you're too excited. Yeah. There's that one. And then, um, and then I have to say, I fell in love with, um, Elton John in a fifth grade book report that I had done on Ryan White. And oh. I had only ever listened to country music my whole life. I lived in a conservative house and, and went to school in a small town. And I checked that book out of the library at my school because Ryan White was so handsome. And I wanted to carry around a book with a beautiful boy on it. And I read that book and I learned about HIV and AIDS. And I learned about how politicized um, Ryan White had, was fighting to not become. He was being used by, trying to be used by the church and by so many other platforms to, um, to turn the zeitgeist on gay men, basically. And when I got to the end of the, of the book, Ryan White had befriended this British rock star who then started the Elton John AIDS Foundation and sang at mm. his funeral, sang a song called Skyline Pigeon. And I went to the King County Library and I heard Elton John sing for the first time after discovering him in that book. And it changed mm. my life. It made me play an instrument and made me write songs and it sculpted my worldview. And so I met Elton John, just like you hope I would, in the basement of a casino in Las Vegas. And um, that was, again, a major milestone in my 
trajectory as an artist. I would say those were my three top three moments. Okay. And then if I was to go back and edit that and be like, Brandy, what were your top moments from your career? And then you told me also about Dolly Parton because I just am like really obsessed. Because <laughs> I don't know if you know this about getting curious. We have been posting a picture of Dolly Parton. Or we went through this phase where we posted okay. a picture of Dolly Parton every Sunday for like three years. Because like I would basically like I would basically do anything to like just interview like like it's Dolly Parton like Sue Magnolia's nine to five. Have you asked? Yeah, I've been. We asked her people. I asked the internet. I, mm-hmm. I've gone to her house. I got a restraining order. I don't even know how we. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't actually do that. Um, you know, no. I, I I would do. I would do. I'd kiss a girl. I'd do anything. <laughs> like I would do whatever I had to do. You know what I'm saying? Um, like I hate mushrooms. I'd eat a mushroom, but I even know that she wouldn't even make me do that because she's Dolly Parton. And I know yep. that it's just like, it's just her people being like protective of her time because she's Dolly Parton. But the point is she would adore you. Like, did you just like, cause you, you've met her like enough times to know who she would like. Well, exactly. I, I have met her now many times. Um, and I would say that the big, turning point in my relationship with Dolly Parton would be around Newport Folk Festival, which is a festival of moments, some of the most historical moments in American music. Like this is the, the, this is the place where Bob Dylan plugged in. You know, this is the place where Johnny Cash introduced Chris Christopherson to the world. This, this place changed the course of, of music culture big time. So, but they had never had an all-female headlining set. And they're known for these sets. And they gave me the unspeakable honor of curating it. And I thought about it. I went back, I researched Newport, and I'm like, what has Newport never had? Newport's never had Dolly Parton. Really? Yeah. So I started writing letters to Dolly, asking if she would come to Newport and shut it down. And I got a polite response a few letters in that said, please don't talk to us anymore about this until (laughs) until after Christmas. So, you know, Newport's in July, so Christmas ends, and I write my my fourth-ish letter. And I get this other reply that's like, the answer's not no, but, you know, Dolly's got a lot going on. And, you know, anyway, one day in early spring, I get this voicemail and, hi, Brandy, it's Dolly. I'm going to be coming to uh, your Newport Folk Festival that you've been writing me about. And I'm going to be singing Because I'm a Woman, Jolene. I'm going to be singing uh, She's an Eagle, 9 to 5, and then I'll be singing I Will Always Love You as a duet with you. I'll be there if the creek doesn't rise. And that was it. It was like, learn them, get them right. And she did. She came. I romantically sang I Will Always Love You to Dolly Parton, like to her face, with an enormous crush I couldn't even hide, and was transported out of body um, in that moment. One of, the, one of the greatest experiences in my life or career. And she can sing. Oh, my Lord, can she sing? She just sings her ass off, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and there's no effort. Because I saw her at the Hollywood Bowl and I cried. I was like not even in good seats, like not even in good seats because like I was like 27 and like just to get there. But I cried the whole time. Like I was beyond moved. Like just in her storytelling. Yeah. Get away from me. You know Dolly well, Parton so well. Jonathan, before before she sang with me, she prayed over me. Uh. Yeah. I, I she comes onto the onto the Newport grounds, right? With a bag over her head. All you can see is her fingernails and her heels. 
And because mm-hmm. she was a surprise. So she gets into this trailer and she asks me how I'm feeling. And for some reason, I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. I feel like I've bit off more than I could chew. I think the band knows the songs. I'm just, I'm nervous. And she goes, okay, I understand what we have to do. And she just took my face in her hands and just prayed for me. And I've, I've actually, that's my lens of Dolly is through the lens of queer faith and the way that she has paved the way for, um, for us in that way. It just struck me, you are someone who is clearly like a student of music. You couldn't like write what you write and learn to play what you've played in terms of learning piano, in terms of learning guitar. You've done, you're just such a musician's musician. And I can hear it when you talk about these legends and it like the Newport, like how it's like such a major place. And sometimes I... Because yeah, this is like embarrassing uh, me, but I'm like reverse sexist with music. Like if you're not a lady, I naturally <laughs> don't want to like, it's like this weird problem I have growing up as like a little gay boy on like a cornfield. Like I only <laughs> like ladies' voices. I can't, or like, an, I, can, I, I although, well, there are some non-binary and there are some cisgender male voices who as an adult I like, but they're all gay. Uh, if they are, uh, you know, if like mm-hmm. Vincent, like I love, um, but, but the point is, is that like, by and large, like I can tell when I should be excited about like a male music. Oh, Elton John. He's one. Yeah. He's one. But again, again, gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like they have to, that's kind of like a prerequisite for like, that gets me over the hump of you. I think it's just because I also wanted to be a diva. But the point is, you're a musician's musician. You are a studier of music. You're a celebrator of other musicians. I love that you cheer other people on. But like, what about little, like, what does it feel like to know that you changed the landscape of this whole music industry? Like, not a genre, like, like the whole, you made a welcome space for so many people that did not feel welcome. And you have consistently done that. Like I said, you know, through so many administrations and times where, you know, our community was going through all sorts of stuff and you made, you changed the landscape. And when you were growing up being a lover of music and did you ever know that you were like literally going to turn out to be the Brandy Carlisle? Yeah, I did. I did. And (sighs) It feels amazing to know that I'm changing the landscape and that I'm one of those voices or one of those people doing it. And I know what you mean. Like, I'm not reverse sexist or anything, but I am drawn intrinsically to, to queer voices. I hear them. I know them a mile away. I don't have to see the photo. I don't have to know the background. I know a queer person when I hear them. And it's because we're sparkly. We're sparkly. We bring so much to the world because it's, it's born of burden and we transcend it. And our audacity precedes us. And those with ears to hear, we can, we can hear it. And um, I, love, I love being that. I love being a queer voice. And I love being a part of what we're doing for the world, just challenging what everybody believes and doing it really fabulously. Wow. What a beautiful, vulnerable journey in Broken Horses. Talking about like growing up, LGBTQIA plus in a rural place in a very religious setting that's checking a lot of my boxes. I remember for me coming out, my mom left a book on my bedroom door that said openly gay, openly Christian. Mm. 
And I remember she was just like, I don't mind if you're gay. I just don't want you to burn in the fiery pits of hell. I'm (laughs) surmising it into less words, but that was the bottom line. You know, she didn't want, uh, that was like, you know, her biggest fear. Yeah. And for me, like spirituality was like a really important part of who I thought I was as a kid. And the thought of like being rejected by like the church or like the people at the church was like such a source of like, pain and you know kind of sadness and I think that for so many queer people we have to like come to um like an, a knowledge of who we are as it pertains to spirituality on like a slower term because it's like not laid out as clearly for us because we have to like deal with something that so many other people don't have to deal with and so what was that like for you like growing up in a rural religious setting and how did you reconnect with your faith and spirituality as an adult well I don't want to gloss over that you mentioned hell, you know, because I think that we have to, um, we almost have to joke about this or talk about this openly to erase some of the dogma, some of that hell imagery and trauma that so many LGBTQIA plus kids are exposed to in their youth, usually before their parents even know um, they're queer or they may know innately and and, uh, are, are in denial about it. But, you know, we're really one of the only, we'll call it demographics that are promised hell from a young age, we're the first ones to find out that we're queer. And we associate that imagery with something innate in us. And there's real trauma to unravel there. And I think about it, I think about it a lot. Um, everything that, that we do, whether it's country music or whether it's what you do on Queer Eye has a correlating culture. And just by living diametrically in the arts, having my feet on the ground, playing music, riding a four-wheeler, becoming a Finnish carpenter, being a country person, raising chickens. I'm changing the narrative of what rural America or what a rural person who's queer is allowed to do and the way that we're allowed to live, which is one of the reasons I like Queer Eye so much. When I see you guys go into spaces that, you know, queer people don't often go into and totally change someone's life and surroundings. It's profound. You know, it's reaching little kids that have that hell imagery in their mind and um, needed a race, but don't want to admit that it's keeping them up at night. Mm. It's interesting how, when you said, you know, don't want to gloss over the hell stuff. And then like my making a joke about it, there are so many things that I do joke about that I don't even like, it is just so deeply ingrained in me to me joke too. about it because yeah. I can't even go back to some of it because it's just like hurts too bad. But I I am just so, I just love you so much, kids, Tanda. Okay, but anyway, how was, the, I guess, the experience of processing so much of that new visceral memories that you didn't have through shaking through broken horses and doing that uh, so publicly? Like, how was that for you? And not to answer the question, but is that what, kind of in these silent days, was that your, almost like your own way of like healing, reliving that? Yeah. And it was also just my way of turning that time into something productive, you know, going, this is what I did with these silent days. You know, what did you do? I I wrote this, I came to this realization. I'm going to come out of this time really loud. And, um, you know, that's why I did it. That's what I meant with the title. Um, and then also working my shit out publicly is just what I do. You know, that's been, 
that's been my thing since I was a little girl. I've always wanted to be famous. I've always wanted to be on stage. I've always wanted to be heard. I don't make any apologies for the fact that I've always wanted to be famous. Um, and I, I think it's because of my hair. I think it's because of Elton and, you know, Patsy Klein, Dolly Parton. Do you ever feel like guilty? Yeah. Like for, <laughs> I do too. Like I always wanted it and I never used to be ashamed of saying that I always wanted to be famous and, but now sometimes I feel really guilty. I think that there are so many different ways to be famous. One thing that you and I have in common about the thing that we've chosen to do with it is to turn really deep, vulnerable, life-changing situations that are, you know, unique to us outward to help other people with them, you know, with our whole hearts, mm. our whole lives. And being famous doesn't necessarily mean being glamorous, or being rich or, you know, having all the right clothes. I think I thought it meant that it would be easier. And it is not. Is it not? Like you do get to impulse buy cuter stuff, but it is like, <laughs> if I used to have a bad day, like I fucked up like maybe a person or two's hair. Mm. Like now it's like, but now I actually thought of a songwriting thing. You know, like in the movies when you're not a musician, like we all, it's like the label. Isn't that like mm -hmm. the network, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so what happens if you like go and you're like, oh my gosh, you guys are going to be obsessed with that. And then have you ever like played something and they were like, I don't get it. And then if so, what do you do? <laughs> I mean, this is nothing against any labels or infrastructure behind my career, but nobody's ever done backflips about my music when I turn it in because it's not very commercial. Nobody's going like, oh yeah, we're going to cash in on this. I think working my albums and supporting me in terms of like the corporate powers that be has always been a labor of love. I think that they love the music because they love it and they know it might not be huge and that that has to be okay with me. It just has to be. That's happened where they were like, can you lose like track three, nine and 12? And you're like, no fuckers. Like Every three, time. nine, 12 is all of it. <laughs> Every time. Man, you know, the worst, the most poignant time that that ever happened was um, the song, my song, The Story on the oh, album, The Story. We love The Story. Oh my God. I love it too. Um, that's the one that I've always like. That's a, a particular song where I really realized like how much I can't sing. I was actually just listening to it, like getting in the, like in my mode for this interview. And it's just like, yeah, I can't even, I'm not even gonna do it in front of you because like I'll die. But it's like, I can't, it's like, I want to sing to it so bad. Do it. And then just, just I do, do I do. And then people like laugh at me when I'm around because they're like, that's like what it sounds like in your head. Like, but I think, but in my head, I sound like you or like you another do. good singer. If but you then, accept yourself, singing feels like flying. It feels like a flying No, dream. but just like, but to other people, it feels like, um, like some sort of like torture like, oh, chamber. Like it's, <laughs> no, I, I mean, when we're not on my podcast, um, so I'll send you a DM of me trying to sing. You'll be like, oh, like, I know you're just like being, but like, it's like, and I, other people can confirm I've it. I can bring them in right now. i you singing on Instagram where you break into song, you know, you just can't help it. And I think it's beautiful. Shut I think it. it's just uh, Could I, you know what I could ever do though? I think just sidebar, um, mm -hmm. If I ever need a cameo and like, if, like, if you ever had like a choir behind you or something for like a random like choir, like if I could ever just lip sync in the choir, like, like, and like people will be like, is that JVM? But they don't even, cause I'll be in like the eighth row. Like I'm really like hidden back there. I'm not even trying to usurp any attention. I just want to lip sync in a choir in, or like, because what's the, what is that, this most recent gorgeous music video that I'm obsessed with that Courtney Cox directed? Right on time. 
why couldn't I have been one of the people like walking? Like I could have like even worn a wig so people wouldn't have been like, is that JVN? Like I just, <laughs> I could have even like camouflaged myself and like, or dressed up as like a straight person or something and people wouldn't have even have known. Just I keep mean, me in mind they would have future, known. Like, they would have like, seen you. They would have known. You are such a pop culture baby, just like me. Do you do heroes? Do you have like heroes? Yeah, I have major heroes, but they're all, actually. Who is your hero? Well, really funny. You should ask. Well, I have. I mean, obviously, Michelle Kwan is like leaps out. I think I mentioned her in my first book like two hundred and seventy-five times. Okay. Um, I was doing this work with my therapist the other day of like centering like your highest self and like you know doing like a guided meditation, going through like a little place like your and it was like Dominique Dawes, like that's who was waiting for me, like on one of the three stumps. Like they're ah, all like nineties and two thousands figure skaters and gymnasts are like really top for me, which is really embarrassing because I was actually doing an interview with um, Ashley Marie Preston, who I love. She's a really good friend of mine. And they asked us, who are your queer icons? And I was like, Rudy Galindo, 1994 world bronze medalist, 1994 U.S. national champion. He was HIV positive. He was out queer. Rudy Galindo. And Mm -hmm. then Ashley Marie Preston was like, um... I'm going to more say like uh, <laughs> Marsha P. Johnson and like Sylvia Rivera. And I was like, yes, of course, our heroes from Stonewall. What are, like yep. Rudy Glenn like, is also a hero, okay? Yeah. That's what I meant to say. But I have, um, but I do have lots of heroes. I mean, um, but accidentally, when I think about it on the spot like that, they're all 90s gymnasts and 2000s gymnasts and figure skaters. Yeah, but that's why you're so special and so unique. It's like we, it's so it's a needed perspective but also like there's other people too like i mean obviously i'm like obsessed with whoopi and there's like so many like different creatives and Mm -hmm. musicians and writers and like that i mean margaret cho is like one of my heroes who like i can't believe like she's kind of one of my elton johns yeah um that i can't believe that i've gotten to work with and and see as much and michelle kwan is also like i mean we've become such good friends that like i i only started acting normal around her like in the last six months. And we've been that. friends since 2018. Yeah, I really get that. Do you always lull hosts of podcasts or your interviewers into such like a nice little shitty chat trance that you end up Listen, asking them questions? Because that doesn't happen to me usually. I am utterly fascinated by you, okay? I'm your creepy fan. And I I watch everything you do and I, you know, DM you and I think about you way more I know than that because we talk to, to each other, but I didn't... <laughs> I, I wish that Julie, my assistant, she's not here to hear this. She would, she'd shit her pants. We're obsessed with you. We can't stand that. <laughs> so, but you do have, sometimes you, there's been things where the label where they're like, they don't understand the genius, but then later you just come back and you're like, I'll take my check. Bye. I was saying the story. There's that moment where my oh. voice cracks. When I say all of these lines, it's like this big moment. It's- the voice cracks. It squeaks. It's like, it's a cool moment. It's like a Whitney moment of a break apart in the voice, right? But it's kind of also not beautiful. And um, and the label wanted me to um, fix that and to, to edit that out. They were like, okay, well, if you're going to leave it on the album, then at least let us do a version for radio that your voice doesn't do that. And I mean, even being like in my early 20s, I knew to kind of just like plant my flag there and go, no, I'm a human being with a human voice. And it does that. And it was like something I'm really proud of when I look back on it. But yeah, it was definitely a label not excited about one of the moments I was excited about moments. I can't believe that was the one because it's such a moment. I feel like that too. 
Have you ever had, um, like, I have had this one time where I accidentally called, um, I accidentally called Irish people British because I, I don't, I don't know if I can tell you the story. Well, okay, no, I'll tell you. Okay. So basically, well, do I want, <laughs> is my filter? Okay. So basically I was doing this stand up comedy show this one time and I just was like, oh, like I just still haven't gotten over that, um, the like 25 beat lemonade for album of the year. I just can't get over it. Cause like, obviously I love Adele, but like, I just, and yeah. then, um, and then, and then, uh, I was like, Ooh, I shouldn't say that I'm in Britain. And then everyone started booing. They're like, boo, fuck you. Cause, and then they were like, you're in Ireland. You're in the Republic of Ireland. And I was like, <gasps> I was also in a leotard. Like I was oh, in a God. leotard after uh, my gymnastics routine. And then I had to like introduce the opener and then I had to like go in the back and I was like kind of pooping my pants and I would like call my mom and she was like, you know what? You just have to like apologize and then they're going to love you again. And I was like, you're so right. And then I just went out there and I was like, you guys, I'm so sorry. Like, obviously Beyonce should have won that, but like, who calls? Like, I just, geography escaped me and I, and then it was like fine and it was like a great show. But have you ever had a moment on a show where you just like momentarily shit your pants and were like, oops, or like, is that just, is it, it's like never happened. Or did you ever like earlier in your career, yeah. did you ever find yourself at like the Tennessee State Fair and it like wasn't cool and you were like scare, scare, not to call Tennessee that, but you know what I mean? I have never done that because I've, it's always been on the forefront of my mind, but I have had that moment where I felt the room turn on me and it was like really like not a big deal. It was early on in my career. I was, um, I was in Tucson, Arizona, and it was during Mardi Gras. I don't know why Tucson is celebrating Mardi Gras in that way, but somebody, the lights were really bright in my face. I was at a club, I think this is called the Rialto. And there was like, it was a, it was a big show for me because they had a radio station. So there was like a thousand people there. And somebody threw Mardi Gras beads at me and they hit me in the eye with my eyes open. I didn't see him coming. It tore my retina. And then my eyes no! light like mascara. But when it happened, I had this like schoolyard bully response where I was like, yelled at the crowd and I was like, I'm not your kindergarten teacher. And it was like, I lost that room and I never got them back the whole rest of the show. And I was dying inside for a straight hour and a half. And I wanted to apologize. I want to take it back. It was just one dude, obviously that hit me in the eye with the beads, but I made this decision. I was like, for the rest of my career, I will never call an audience out because it's never worth it. So I never have. But have you ever felt the room turn on you when that happens? Like the room feels like you're well, yeah, though, the Ireland time I got, that's the only time I ever got yeah. booed. Oh, um, God, that's a nightmare. I also, the room turned on me when I tried to, I was trying really hard to make this one joke work. And it was just, I was, I'll tell, I'll, let's see if it works for you. Okay. Okay. So it was in my new, it was in my new set. And I okay. was like, I'm HIV positive. This is my second pandemic. And at one time, they were killing it. Like people were, because it was, I was, I opened for Margaret Cho and people were laughing, just thought it was like the funniest thing they ever heard. Then I did the same joke um, at a college and there was all these like 18 year old kids, like probably like 18 year old like girls. And I did that joke and they were like, oh my God. Like I could literally just like feel the whole room go like, <gasps> and then I was like, was it too much? And then I just <laughs> felt, um, I just felt really uncomfortable the whole time. And I felt like I traumatized this like room full of like teenagers. And I, I don't know. I don't know if I really lost them so much as I lost uh, myself. Oh yeah. And, then well, I, and, and then that's I, the thing is maybe it is really us and we think it's losing the room, but it's like something changes. We flip something inside of us. Maybe you like yeah. lose the will to like be vulnerable. Cause you like over 
like I early I overdid it and then I was like, I don't know how to bring this back from the ledge. Um, mm-hmm. Generally speaking, this is kind of just like music world. Wait, how much more time do we have? Like six minutes, two minutes, three, no, no minutes, three, <laughs> five minutes. How many, how much time do we have left? I mean, I will talk to you all damn day. No, because you're just being a nice person. I know you have like fucking places to go and people to see. Okay. So three more minutes, rapid fire. Okay. Um, okay. I did that. Okay. So because your career has spanned a gorgeous time, what do you, what has changed since the beginning? If there's people who are passionate about music, specifically like young people who are passionate about music, actually not even young people, because why is it always about young people? If you're a person who's passionate about music, specifically mm-hmm. like a queer person, what's, do you have any advice for these people that want to get more into the music industry? Is there, is there space for us? Is there room for more people? Yeah, I think I say my advice to people, if they want to get into music, if this really is where your heart's taking you, like hold on to yourself, but find other people. Don't be alone. Play with people in a band, form a community around yourself, create support, chosen family. It's queer survival 101. But whether you're queer or not, find people, find community, form communities, form ideologies. But just do that like on the side and maybe don't become like a group act because then like they might be fucking nightmares and like just jam with them on the side because like it's kind of fierce just being like a solo act like Brandy Carlix. You know, it's like gotta like wait if like because maybe you got like, you know, just whatever. Maybe that's my own thing, but whatever. <laughs> so, okay. So there's that. And then um, what's next for you? Yeah, I'm going to be touring the new album and um, I have my uh, women's festival. Uh, Girls Just Want a Weekend, where all women headline the stages, every stage, and we sell it out every year. And we hope to send the message back to um, the U.S. concert industry that we can throw down and sell tickets um, all by our all by ourselves. Uh, or maybe you can just like tell the U.S. concert industry to go fuck themselves. You don't even need them anymore. <laughs> and you'll be like that tennis tour movie with Billie Jean King. And then you guys all just become like love. just your own like concert thing and you'll get your own stages and then next thing you know you guys will be your own promoters you'll be like fucking kajillionaires Sarah knew Sarah McLaughlin knew Lilith Fair was was she your favorite when you were like a little tiny baby girl I went to every Lilith Fair and that's JVN Heaven, Lilith Fair is, by the way. I was, I mean, I was doing all these corporate interpretive dances to Sarah McLaughlin. Oh, just Adia, you should have seen the heartbreak on my single axle. Like that was like the apex mm. of like Adia. And I was just, oh, and I, I was like, just, I, I'm obsessed with Sarah McLaughlin. So Did good. you know we're doing a show together? What? We're playing The Gorge in Washington State where the Lilith Fair took place when I was 17, 18, and 19. I went to all three of them on that same stage. I'm going to make her sing all those songs with me. Angel, I'm going to just walk out, sing Adia, but also hold on, hold on to yourself. But this is going to hurt like hell. The whole thing. Hold on, hold on to yourself. Mirror ball. It's happening. I was just looking behind me to see if anyone saw that, like, I was getting sung to by Brandy Carlisle on Zoom. Like, get away. Also, Building a Mystery is another classic. And also, random sidebar, and then I'm going to let you go, I swear to God. Have you ever heard the one Sarah McLaughlin song, Winter Song, that mm-hmm. she sings on her, like, when, uh, and it's just like... Yeah. Um, my high school cheers or my high school dance team, the Q City Palmers, every year, it's such a fire hazard. One of the years it's going to get canceled. They turn down all the lights Mm -hmm. in the gym of my local high school. They pitch black the lights, no lights. Then all of the Palmers, they all have these two flashlights and in their pants or like the skirts, they have all these other colored flashlights Mm -hmm. and they do this like light show to Sarah McLaughlin winter song. They do like a Santa honey, a Christmas tree. 
they're like coming down off the aisles, like waving the lights. It is so major. I have to. I've, Has this been filmed? The YouTube video. It's on YouTube, but it like sucks on YouTube. It's like not as cool as real life. But if I can find like a cute video by the time you do that show, I'm gonna like DM you like a million videos and maybe just show her because it's like kind of fierce come. and like just come be my guest. Literally, Brandy Carlisle. I'm getting curious. Get out of my face, everyone. Uh, get her. Get the book. Get her new uh, gorgeous album in these silent days. Um, which is available now. We're going to include everything uh, so that people can follow you. But just thank you so much for coming on, Brady. We love you so much. And thank you I for your time. so much. And all your advocacy and everything you do, we love you so much. I love you. Thank you so much. That was really, really special. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Brandy Carlisle. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and show them how to subscribe. You know, you got to go on the, you know, the app. You got to get on the podcast or the Spotify or whatever. You got to press subscribe. So just don't forget to show them how to do that. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 